Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Celine Yap, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Gillian Triggs, the former president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. During her time at the AHRC, she launched a national inquiry into children in immigration detention in 2014 to investigate the ways in which life in immigration detention affects the health, well-being and development of children. The report on the forgotten children devoted a chapter to the plight of 116 children who were still on Nauru, concluding they were suffering from extreme levels of physical, emotional, psychological and developmental distress and identifying multiple breaches of the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. The report was highly criticised by the Abbott government, and government ministers subsequently called for Triggs to step down from the presidency of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Since then, she has spoken out about the need for a legal protection of rights in Australia, a Bill of Rights that would ensure governments could not act counter to human rights. Australia is currently the only Western country to not have a Bill of Rights. Women on the Line. Welcome to the show, Gillian, and thank you so much for um, taking the time to be with us this morning, uh, today. <laughs> oh, it's a very great pleasure to be with you. I know that your biggest thing at the moment is campaigning for a Bill of Rights or a Human um, Human Rights Charter. Um, but I thought I'd ask, um, it has been argued by a few people that other countries who do have a Bill of Rights still have a terrible record of upholding human rights. Um, so how much of a difference would such a bill make to human rights in Australia? Well, I think um, that's an important point because a number of people raise it with me. And the the, the, the truth is that many, many totalitarian countries over the years have had um, equivalents of charters and bills of rights, and not least of them being Russia. Um, so the, the key point isn't, isn't necessarily that you have a charter, but that it is that you have a democratic country with a democratic system of representative government. And when you have that in place, then a charter will be very effective indeed uh, on the basis of an independent judiciary. Uh, but if you, if a, if a totalitarian or authoritarian government uh, perhaps wants a bit of window dressing and, and drafts a charter, that will have very, very little influence, partly because they are not usually independent uh, judges. So uh, it is a critical element of having any charter, a legislative charter of, of, of rights, which is what I'm arguing for, uh, that you do need to operate within a system according to the rule of law and democracy. And I, I read about that um uh, I read that a bill or charter would take the final decisions out of the hands of um, politicians in the government and put it into the hands of judges. Is that right? And um, if if this is the case, is there any chance of politicians approving such a bill which would cause them to lose so much power? Well, you, you, you've, you've really hit on one of the, the biggest um, uh, in, uh, alleged in, impediments to having a charter. Because there's no doubt that if you have a, 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 a I'm recommending a, a legislated charter of rights, where government has failed to meet those standards, the right to privacy, the right to protest, the right to for indigenous people, for example, to their culture and, and recognition, all of these things would have to be ultimately, because the language is necessarily very simple, uh, the language would have to be interpreted by the courts. But in the model that I'm proposing, 
um, the idea would be, just as in the Victorian Charter of Rights and the ACT, and similarly with New Zealand, I might add, mm-hmm. and other countries, uh, it's what's called, perhaps not very helpfully, but called nonetheless a dialogue model. And what it means is it sets up a dialogue between uh, Parliament and the courts. What the courts will be empowered to do is to say, the legislation that you've just introduced, let's say um, the mandatory sentencing laws or laws that prohibit uh, protesting on environmental matters in, New, in uh, New South Wales. If those went to the court, and the court would say, well, right, we've got a clear uh, right in the Charter, right to protest. Um, we, will, we will conclude uh, that, in our view, the legislation or proposed legislation is, uh, breaches that term of the, of the Charter. All that the court will be able to do is to refer it back to Parliament, hence the notion of dialogue, so that Parliament could then uh, ensure that the legislation it's proposing or administering um, is uh, is consistent with the Charter. Now, in other words, the last word lies with Parliament, where many would see it preferably to go. And this this system that you're currently talking about, was that the same one that it was attempted to introduce a, a mm-hmm. while back and failed? Or is this a different way? That, that's correct. No, broadly uh, along the same lines. Okay. In other words, what I'm, what I'm arguing for is not new in Australia. Um, uh, we have what's called the, the Brennan Report by Father Frank Brennan. Yes. Um, I think he reported in 2009. Yep. Uh, he did a, an enormous national consultation, very thorough cities, suburbs, regional and remote communities. And there was a lot of and interest in it too. Enormous interest. Yeah. And he concluded, and I have to accept it as true, that there was overwhelming support um, in Australia generally for some form of legislated charter of rights along the dialogue model of moving back and forth between the courts and, and Parliament so that it, ultimately the Parliament has the final say. Now, I think that, that, that he made that proposal and Labor initially agreed that it would go forward with introducing a charter. But um, in the political environment of the time, it balked at, these, at the hurdle and um, they looked at various other alternatives, none of which succeeded, and the idea you know, fell over. Uh, my very sincere hope is that if we were to have a change of government, uh, there would be uh, that Labor would again seriously consider, in in essence, the the Brennan recommendations. Although um, amendments could be made to that to meet more recent concerns. Do you think we have learned from from the, trying that and failing? Do we, do we think we've Do you think we've learned anything new so that if we tried it again, we wouldn't have the same mistakes happen, or was it all sort of by chance and just wrong timing? I think it was probably the timing and the, um, as, as I think everybody knows, we've had a pretty chaotic political environment for the last 10 years. And it's been extremely difficult um, uh, for Labour when it's been in power to go forward with this because it's had other, what it would see as more urgent matters to deal with um, and, and huge political upheavals, as we know, with changes in prime ministers. Um, uh, the, the, I think that the timing is different now. And as you suggest, Timing is absolutely critical, is everything. Yeah, I was actually going to uh, um, go on to that because I remember yeah. at your talk uh, a few weeks ago at Melbourne University, um, the talk on religion and human rights in Australia, you mm-hmm. mentioned the importance of timing a campaign after elections. Mm-hmm. made a note of that. And then when I read through um, your history and what had happened, I realised that you had a lot of trouble after you launched the inquiry into children because of timing right. and they blamed it all on Again, timing. Again, it was timing. You... Um, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, the, the, uh, the, just as we were actually getting somewhere with the Labour Party, they were moving 
Um, they were moving children through the detention system out into the community. We had a new election and that brought in Tony Abbott. And then there was no action at all for many months and we decided, and I decided as president, uh, to go forward with the inquiry. But that really touched a raw nerve with the with the new government and that meant that all the work that was done on, on the on the inquiry and recommendations were, were really just simply ignored. What was somewhat gratifying was that shortly after the MOS inquiry made very similar findings and recommendations and they've been repeated yeah, by so Senate felt... inquiry and by UN bodies and so on. So, I mean, I think that the substance of it was right. It was just that politically from that time, from 2014, really up to now, uh, the de- how the government chooses to deal with asylum seekers and refugees remains pretty much at the top of the political agenda. If you have the, if you have the luxury mm. of choosing your timing, then obviously do so with a great deal of care. Uh, but my experience of life is that you very often don't have a lot of choice. That's about true. You, you, you simply are right in the middle of it and you either get on with your job or you don't. Mm. Um, and we decided to go for it, uh, hoping uh, that the, that the um, Abbott government would have the same sort of ultimate compassion that the Howard government had in, in uh, getting people off offshore processing and, and back into the community in Australia. That, that was done relatively quietly by the by the Howard government and the matter went off the political agenda. But the Howard government and the, the prime ministers we've had since have all seen political advantages in keeping it uh, hot on the agenda. And as we've seen from the last week and even today, uh, it continues to be um, uh, absolutely at the forefront of, of the political debate. Uh, give, with an election looming. So I think the answer to the question of choosing timing is you can be lucky, you can be unlucky, um, but I- eventually you just have, have to, to, do to, it. <laughs> to, to, to go forward with what you believe is the right thing to do um, and and let the let the cards fall as they may, perhaps. Yeah, that, that's very fair. Um, you mentioned also, interestingly, in, in, in another interview, um, that international laws such as trade laws and the law of the sea are respected by pretty much all countries, but mm. not so much international law on human rights. Why do you think that is? I thought that was a very interesting point. Yes, it's been... Um, it, it, I do mention that that point of difference because some people will say international law is is uh, is not effective because it doesn't have a, a system of enforcement. But that actually isn't true. I'd say 95% of the time, countries see a reciprocal and mutual benefit in abiding by the rules of international law. But there are often rules that you hardly ever see debated in the public arena. Um, uh, Sea lanes, navigational sea routes, for example, which actually are in the media because of the South China Sea um, uh, conflicts. But um, but other very boring areas like um, postal services and uh, flights over exclusive economic zones and territories of other states, uh, diplomatic immunity, the representation of international organizations and so on, all uh, trade contracts, World Trade Organization disputes, they all proceed uh, along uh, along treaty lines with various tribunals and so on to help resolve the matters of international law, and they do so in a way that most of us are, are oblivious to. Um, uh, the, it, we simply take the system for granted, and it actually works very well. But when you come to something which is seen as, as um, a vital national interest, for example, the territorial boundary or access to oil and gas uh, on the continental shelf, then you find that... that the international legal system starts to break down, and that's where you tend to see conflict. But the other area where you you tend to see it is, of course, in the area of human rights, because the the sad reality is that the 
the entity or the, the institution or the, the country most likely to breach your human rights is the country of which you're a citizen. So it's, it's by definition almost uh, for most people uh, internal, it's national. And that is why so many countries, the Chinese, for example, will almost always argue that how they treat their, the people within their jurisdiction is a matter for domestic jurisdiction and not a matter for international law. And they will, um, in some areas, not all, but in some areas, ignore uh, the principles of international law. And similarly, Australia uh, does this with regard to our treatment of indigenous peoples, uh, violence against women, asylum seekers and refugees. We are much criticised by international human rights bodies and the Human Rights Council and the Universal Periodic Review of the Human Rights Council, much criticised for our failure to abide by the principles and the rule of law uh, through treaties, in particularly with regard to asylum seekers, refugees and in indigenous incarceration rates, which are the world's highest, not something to be proud of. Indeed, a tragedy. Do but, you think... um, but that Australia ignores it. Do you think that a lot of it is because um, there is no economic value placed on something like human rights? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I'd not really thought of that. Um, I guess you could put an economic value on it. Um, people. But mm. it's not one governments would, would, would particularly appreciate. No, that's um, true. In other words, if the Chinese want to execute more than 1,000 people a year, um, it's not for them so much a matter of economics as it is a matter for what they see as, as public order. Um, how you would encourage China to reduce its uh, use of the death penalty and to improve its criminal laws and rules of evidence, um, that will probably only happen ultimately by engaging it in the international community and exposing it to opprobrium, really, if it fails to meet those standards. But it's a very, very difficult thing to achieve. Um, and uh, states do see these, the questions of how they treat their nationals. In Australia's case, for example, with asylum seekers, they simply wouldn't see it as economics, but they'd see it as, as immigration politics, that they want to, quote, protect national borders, and they'll do anything uh, in their minds that's necessary to achieve that. I mean, there have been examples where tr trade sanctions have been used through the United Nations and, and uh, in regional and bilateral arrangements uh, where countries have used economic sanctions. And we do, for example, at the moment against Iran. Mm. Um, we, we did, with the United Nations did in relation to apartheid in South Africa. Yeah, um, it's been and, and it's of course currently used in relation to Russia, um, and China, and America is using trade laws um, as as Against a vehicle Mexico. to persuade China to to adopt a different approach to um. trade practices. So I mean, we still use economic sanctions, but um, they are of, are of relatively limited impact. Um, it's amazing, for example, how a country like South Africa, if you look back at the records. South Africa started manufacturing things that it could no longer import because of the trade sanctions and actually uh, did rather better <laughs> oh, wow. through achieving a level of self-sufficiency. Now, ultimately, we know if, um, uh, apartheid was, uh, uh, came to an end uh, and we had the process of reconciliation. But I should think that economic sanctions had something to do with it. It was by no means um, a silver bullet or it was by no means the only mechanism for achieving that human rights outcome. And is that what happened in Cuba as well, which is why Cuba became um, really independent because of the, um, 
I think the the US cut them off. From... Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's another example. Of, of, I mean, in Cuba's case, what they did was create a very a sort of little bubble of their mm. own culture and so on. But but to create an in the end, people are so determined. States, gov- um, governments can be so determined to do things their own way, even though we might see them, and they are inconsistent with international human rights law. It, it does have some positive spin-offs in, in terms of unifying a country and and generating the the willingness to to manufacture and do things on their own, uh, whereas otherwise they might have, have worked in a, in a collaborative environment. I mean, ultimately, it's not a very healthy thing to be doing, but but uh, in the short term. Uh, economic sanctions are, no, are not always as effective as you would think and have unexpected consequences. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have mentioned previously that you were never what people describe as particularly left-wing um, before your time at the mm. Australian Human mm. Rights Commission. I know you don't like using left and right, and obviously, mm. like the, the terms left and right can be so um, divisive, actually. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But was there? Can you remember one singular moment um, where you realised uh, which changed people's perspective of you? Well, I think probably it was the really um, aggressive challenge to the Human Rights Commission and to my decision as president in what was the, the basic basic case, which mm. was a rather sad case um, and a tragic case in many respects of a of a refugee from Papua. He had refugee status in Australia, um, uh, but he um, brutally murdered his partner and was convicted of manslaughter. And he served, I think, eight or nine years, the full term for his crime very unusually because most people get some sort of parole, but he served out the whole of his term. The term came to an end and he was immediately rearrested and detained in maximum security prisons, I think now for, for about something in the order of 10 years. So in, in other words, um, there's been an executive discretion by the government that they will never release him, uh, despite medical uh, views to the contrary. Well, as president, I found that this was contrary to international law, was arbitrary detention without charge of trial, contrary to medical evidence, etc. Uh, but the 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 labor, the liberal and coalition national party members took great exception to my decision, and and were very critical of it and challenged it, etc. Now that was when I first realised that the that the consequence of decision making at the Human Rights Commission, uh, really presented people from from an extreme right, in my view, conservative, mm. uh, very conservative people uh, who really didn't understand the rule of law. But nonetheless, that's when I realized that people would see me as, as left-leaning. Now, in fact, as far as I was concerned, I was simply doing my job according to the law, which was the, um, you know, the underpinnings of, of the statute under which I operated. I saw this totally as a lawyer. But I started to realise that the outcome of carrying out my job were going to, or the outcomes were going to um, encourage people to think that I was actually a very left of centre and putting views that they, they found unpalatable. Were you surprised by that reaction from the government to what you had found with your inquiry and your research? Well, I wasn't. I mean, we did, of course, a lot of reports to Parliament and a lot of inquiries of one form or another. Um, and I guess I always expected that evidence-based, fact-based research and, and, and an accurate understanding of the law 
would command some respect. And I, I, I you always expect some pushback from some people. You're always going to get some who, who will never read reports and never and simply have an ideological approach to things. But I, I would have thought there'd be a minority. I was surprised by the ferocity of the attack on what I knew to be factually accurate and, and legally um, you know, correct. And, and, and recommendations that were measured and modest in all the circumstances. So it was surprising that people took such a political and ideological approach when all I was doing and all the staff of the Commission were doing was, was our job according to the statute that Parliament itself had passed. On, on that note, I was going to ask you a question about uh, your comment on, on academics and research. And uh, you mentioned before that um, academics need to get better at putting their research into plain language. Mm. And I find this to be the case even in science. So one of my back, many backgrounds is in environmental science as well. And I do mm. find that um, the research that comes out of universities never, they get they get published in journals, but they don't really mm, make it out right. to the wider community, which no. is why. Um, so do you have any advice on that, actually? Well, uh, one of the things that I've, I've now come to realise uh, is the very high quality of research that's conducted in Australian universities, but the uh, almost complete failure to translate that work uh, into the public arena. And I now think that we have a responsibility um, those doing scholarly research to reproduce it uh, in a way that is in simple, clear English. Mm. Uh, not dumbing, it doesn't have to be dumbed down. It just has to be written clearly. And I, and I have to say, lawyers are among the worst at this, <laughs> uh, particularly those in the theoretical areas. But um, but I, I would like to see the, the physicists and the biologists and the and the, and the humanities experts with history and so on. I know one of the one of the underlying reasons this has happened is that academics only get the credit for publishing in, in um, very high caliber journals. Yes. So they they get no benefit whatever from publishing in let's say a quadrant article or um, the conversation uh, or, or, or an op-ed in the newspaper yeah. or doing an, doing an interview like this. Yeah. Um, now, the universities will say, oh, well, we do take account impact and contribution to the public debate. But in my personal experience, that's never the case. The reality is that the, the, the scholars that, that can go up the, the ladder, if you like, uh, to get chairs in their field and to get funding for their research are ones who've published in the, in the A-plus journals uh, that are opaque and <laughs> absolutely not accessible to the general public. Oh, they're so all. difficult to read. Pages and Extremely pages long. Pages of stats. And <laughs> that's right. And yeah. that, I think, is, an, is irresponsible. Yeah. I, I think that we're, most of us are working on the public purse. Uh, we get a lot of funding from government. Um, we're paid for by our universities that are in part funded by the government. And I think that we've got a responsibility to get that work out into the public arena. I was very surprised and, and, and disappointed, really, when I started to work as, as president of the commission and working with with with, with parliament, and with government, government officials, to realise I don't think in the whole five years that I was there did anyone ever refer to a piece of scholarly research from a university academic. And that's so strange and because a, when you write an academic report, it's full of references and research yes. to other journals and other publications. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It, it's an internal circle and, and scholars speak to scholars because it becomes very, very highfalutin in, in, a, in a sense. But there's almost nothing that can't be translated to plain English if you try. 
And um, and I think that, that uh, that's why we've got to get an op-ed out. If you've discovered a new star or something, why not write something for the uh, for the Fairfax Media or the Conversation or um, or go on a talk show to talk about it? Um, and yet I'm afraid there's a there's a, a academic um, some some colleagues in the academic world could be quite snobbish, and they would see that as populist. Um, uh, work of, of very little mer- real merit. And I think that that's the attitude that has to be um, reconsidered. I've, I've been asked this question before um, by a lot of people who I speak to about refugees and the whole issue about asylum seekers and what's going on. A lot of them feel really terrible and want to help, but a lot of them don't know how. So I've been actually asked to ask you, um, what can the average person who is not a human rights lawyer or a politician do to help the situation? Well, I think we are in a democratic system in Australia. We do have representative democracy, and I know it's a boring answer, but we will only get our politicians to react in Canberra if they believe that their constituents are concerned about the issue. And one of the, again, disappointments to me is that um, at least until the last six months or, or year, people in, in elected in constituencies in, in, in their electorates have not raised their concerns with their with their um, representatives, with their with, with their elected member of parliament, so that when they go up to Canberra, they're not going to risk their political career or they're not going to speak up for this because they don't see that they're. Uh, their constituents are concerned about it. Mostly, people, of course, are concerned about jobs, about health and hospitals, education for their for their children, about um, uh, public safety. Of course, these are top of mind, and they're not really going to be worrying too much about writing to their politician about asylum seekers who are, you know, four hours flight away from the Australian mainland. On that note, yeah, because uh, you know how a lot of um, activist groups they they print a generic letter and they they, they get people to sign. Um, yes. So when those letters get sent to MPs, do they notice them or do they just ignore them because they know they've been mass printed and mass signed? Well, I, I think the latter and the kind of comment that I heard, you know, in the corridors of power in Canberra was, mm-hmm. oh, that they if you said, for example, thirty thousand people have signed a, a letter, yeah. Uh, there will be an immediate dismissal on the basis that it was a form letter and it was done by an activist group funded by, you know, a left-wing philanthropist or whatever, uh, and it was of no significance whatsoever. There's, I think there's no doubt that individual letters, individually okay. written, coming from the heart, yep. in sufficient numbers will start to have an impact. Do and they that's read one them? Thing, but there are others. You know, I think young people can get out on the streets. We did for Vietnam. Why, yeah. why can't you get out in the streets about it? Yeah, I think those are things to be done. That was Professor Julian Triggs, the former president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs programme made for community radio. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Community Radio.